Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be giving an overview of Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism. Around the 4th century BC, there was an individual named as Plato. We should all be familiar with him. He founded the school of Platonism. Around the time of Jesus, what occurred was what is known as Middle Platonism, in which Plato's theories, ideas were being developed into some more systematic thought. By the time of Plotinus, around 200 AD, Plotinus really founded this school of Neoplatonism. It's, it's a continuum. It's just not, not something brand new into history. So he's following in traditions that were already established before him. Plotinus had a teacher, Ammonius Sactus. As we talked about in our podcast on the ideas of Origen, Origen also was a student, a disciple of Ammonius Sactus. And so when we're reading Origen, we see a lot of the same ideas, the same concepts that we also find in Plotinus. In Origen, we all descended from uh, first principle. The material world is a fallen world. And from this world, we need to re-merge with the one. These, these are ideas in, in Christian, quote-unquote Christian, uh, philosophy in the, in the works of Origen. And of course, in our podcast on Augustine or Augustine, Conversions to Confessions, we point out quite accurately that Augustine was infatuated with Neoplatonism. And even his friends admitted that. He said, in your works, Augustine, Plato is, and Plotinus is mentioned constantly. It's, it's everywhere and always implied. And anyone who's familiar with the material, anyone who's familiar with Plotinus, familiar with Augustine, familiar with Augustine's life, they understand this and they accept this. The only people that deny it are evangelicals who want to just pretend that uh, early Christianity wasn't heavily influenced by ne Neoplatonistic ideas. And that's false. They're ahistorical. And uh, it, it's funny to see their dodge moves. They just don't understand the material. They don't know what they're talking about. They, they don't understand Plotinus, and they don't understand Augustine in the works that Augustine writes. But let's start out covering some literature. If you want further information on Plotinus and Neoplatonism, of course, we got this uh, Plotinus book pulled up. I got multiple copies. Maybe I stole one of my dad's copies. I don't know. Pierre Haddad has this uh, Platonus or Simplicity of Vision, which talks about the Platonic accent in very technical terms. If you want some sort of uh, hippie uh, modern-day Platonism, there's this Return to the One. Uh, Plotinus's Guide to God-Realization talks about the Platonic Ascension. And, of course, there's a little uh, book called Plotinus and an Introduction to the Aeneads. And the Aeneads were the books or the, the lectures given by Plotinus, which were which were compiled by his student Pulfrey. And we've talked about Pulfrey in the past, too. He was a famous anti-Christian during early Christianity. But get this uh, Lloyd P. Gerson book that's probably going to be the best book on Plotinus, who he was, and his school of thought. They're probably the most easy to understand and thorough. Jumping over to the Amazon store, you can find the book Neoplatonism for free. It's a very simple, quick overview of the ideas found in Neoplatonism. I highly suggest reading it. It's a free book, so why not? The Aeneads also can be found for pretty cheap. You can find them free online if you want just an HTML-type copy. But the Aeneads on Kindle, that's what we're going to be using today to cover just the basic premises of Neoplatonism. We'll start with the Neoplatonic world, how the world is structured. There's three different levels of existence. There's the, the one, and the one in Platonism is this eternal first cause principle, this uh, intellectual being. Uh, equate that with the Calvinist notion of God, where God is a purely simple being 
without change, unknowable, eternal, with no composition. And, and this is true if you, if you understand basic Calvinist metaphysics. It, it, it's the same idea, the same concept of God. So when Plotinus uses these words like the one or uh, it, it's sometimes the first principle, he sometimes refers to the one in different terminology. You have to be very careful when reading Plotinus so you know exactly what he's talking about. If he's talking about this first principle or an outflowing of that first principle, a creative principle that's spawned by this first principle, and it gets very complex very quickly. But let's read this. The one is all things and no one of them. The source of all things is not all things. All things are its possession, running back, so to speak, to it. Or more correctly, not yet so they will be. But a universe from unbroken unity in which there appears no diversity, not even duality. If you're following what he's saying here, there's this first principle, this uncompounded, simple being that's the source of everything which is unbroken unity. And so the, the universe has to somehow spawn or get created from this, this simple unity being. He says, it is precisely because that there is nothing within the one that all things are from it. In order that being might be brought about, the source must be no being but being's generator. Think the, the uncaused cause. In, in Christian apologetics, they say, oh, there must be this first primal cause, and every cause or every effect must have a cause, and you must go back and back to this, this first cause. Because that's Platonist metaphysics, and we see that here. So everything that has been must be generated by some sort of thing that has no being, this perfectly simple unity. And Plotinus writes, in what is to be thought of as a primal act of generation, seeking nothing, possessing nothing. Remember, in Calvinist philosophy, God doesn't need anything. God can't gain anything. Gaining anything would mean less than perfection. Same, same stuff as Platonism. The same ideas. It is Platonism. It is Platonism. If God gains anything to himself, then he was lacking before, and he's not perfect perfection, and he's not perfect simplicity, because to gain would cause composition, and it just undermines the whole the whole metaphysics that are set up by Platonism slash Calvinism. Seeking nothing, possessing nothing, lacking nothing, the one is perfect, and in our metaphor has overflowed, and its exuberance has produced this new, this product has turned again to its begetter, and been filled and has become its contemplator, so as an intellectual principle. So this intellectual principle, the realm of the intellect, is spawned from the one. And it's spawned in this manner where the one almost reflects on itself. It's not a real reflection because the one doesn't have composition in order to reflect on itself. It's kind of a mirror image that spawns everything that exists. And remember in Calvinism, God creates in one eternal simple act. God knows everything in one eternal simple act because God can't be compounded in normal Calvinist metaphysics. It's the same stuff. Remember, it's uh, who said that uh, Christianity is Platonism for the people. That station towards the one, the fact that something exists in presence of the one, establishes being. That vision directed upon the one establishes the intellectual principle. Standing towards the one to the end of vision, it is simultaneously intellectual principle and being. In attaining resemblance and virtue of this vision, it repeats the act of the one in pouring forth a vast power.
So I understand there's a lot of words going on, but just imagine God, the one, being a purely simple point on a blank screen. God is simple. He has no composition, is the source of everything. You could draw a circle around that dot. So you got a dot with a circle around it. The, the circle is everything that outpours from the one. It creates a new realm of existence. This is the form, this first circle that emanates from the one is called the intellectual principle, the realm of the intellect. And this is a lesser uh, copy of the one. It, it, it resembles the one in certain ways, but it has composition. It has being. It has uh, some sort of form and some sort of uh, complexity to it. And from that intellectual principle spawns the realm of the soul. The second outflow is a form or idea represent the divine intellect, as divine intellect represents its own prior, the one. So e each different succession of worlds mirrors the first. There's some connection from one outpouring to a next. And this is an important concept in Neoplatonism because the idea of Neoplatonism as a return to the one is, is re tracing the steps, the steps of descension of uh, manifestations of the world and following those back up, following an ascent in order to reach the one. That, that's the goal of the good Neoplatonists. The active power sprung from essence, from the intellectual principle being considered as being is soul. So soul is the third realm. And soul, think of soul as the realm of the material world. Everything that's around us that has form, which has matter, which has atoms, which has a change and decay. The intellectual world has less change. It's, it's, it's almost like an immutable realm of spirit. That It's not as quite as perfect as the realm of the one, but it has less change. It's the realm of ideal forms, if you're familiar with Plato's writings. And the intellectual realm, it, it reflects on itself and creates the realm of the soul, the material world as we know it, and we see around ourselves, and that's the realm that changes. Soul arises as the idea and act of motionless intellectual principle, which itself sprang from its own motionless prior. But the soul's operation is not similarly motionless. Its image is generated from its movement. It takes the fullness by looking to its source, but it generates its image by adopting another, a downward movement. This image of soul is sense and nature, and vegetal principle. So there's a there's a difference. Every time that there's a, this further emanation, this further moving away from the one, you introduce more change, more complexity, more chaos. And the Gnostics during the time of Jesus, during the time of Paul, introduced all these aeons or these generations in which the purely actual good God had to be separated from the material change. And so you had all sorts of declensions or all sorts of dissensions, all sorts of layers between God and the material world. And they thought in this way that they insulate God from decay, change, corruption by adding these insulating layers. That's the same idea as what Plotinus is doing here that uh, isolates God from the changing world. The intellectual principle, the, the changeless uh, one insulates him from the changeable world that we see around us. So you got the intellectual principle world between acting as a buffer between God and the changing world.
So backing up in the works of Plotinus in the Aeneids, he talks about our souls. And each individual is imbued with some sort of divine spark, as the Gnostics would say, some sort of divine element, which connects us to the previous realms. There's this, this idea that each of the realms intersects in some sort of way, and we have to follow those intersecting ways in which those realms connect in order to return to the one. Reading Plotinus, since there is a soul which reasons upon the right and good, for reasoning is an inquiry into the rightness and goodness of this rather than that, there must exist some permanent right. The source and foundation of this reasoning in our soul. How else could such any discussion be held? Further, since the soul's attention to these matters is intermittent, there must be within us an intellectual principle acquainted with the right, not by momentary act, but in permanent possession. Similarly, there must be also in the principle of this principle, its cause, God. This highest cannot be divided and allotted must remain intangible but not bound to space. It may be present at many points wheresoever there is anything capable of accepting one of its manifestations. Thus, a center is an independent unity. Everything within the circle has its term at the center. And to this center, the radii bring each their own. Within our natures is such a center by which we can grasp and are linked and held. And those of us are firmly in the supreme whose collective tendency is there. We have some sort of connection to this divine world, the intellectual principle world, which in itself has a connection to the one. The, the layers connect. And how do, how do we, in Plotinus, how do we ascend back to the one? He talks about this as well, that it, it's this introspective meditation. It's throwing out the material world, throwing out the change. And Plotinus, in his life, he lived a very austere life. A lot of Christian monetists did this uh, during early Christianity where they disdained everything physical. They, they disclaimed worldly goods, worldly lusts, and tried to live a very, a very uh, reclusive life, living on top of maybe a pillar and depriving themselves of food, de depriving themselves of sex, any pleasures of the physical world because the physical world was that uh, dissension from the divine principle. You had to do everything in your power to make yourself right to ascend to that higher state. Plotinus writes this, Nonetheless, every being of the order of soul is in continuous activity as long as life holds, continually executing to itself its characteristic act. Knowledge of the act depends upon transmission and perception. If there is to be perception of what is thus present, we must turn the perceptive faculty inwards and hold it to attention there, hoping to hear a desired voice. We let all others pass and are alert for the coming of the last of the most welcome of sounds. So here we must let the hearings of sense go by, save for sheer necessity, and keep the soul's perception bright and quick to the sounds from above. So you disdain the physical, you disdain your senses, your touch, taste, hear, smell. You get rid of all of that and introspectively meditate on the one. And in that way, you could attempt to return to the one. Augustine, in his writings, talks about his own personal ascents to the one. He had uh, one potential one and then one actual ascent that's recorded in Confessions. But also, he would go to his uh, peasants that he would be teaching in a rural Africa, and he would try to teach uh, rural peasants to meditate and introspectively ascend to the one. 
So this this was deep deeply embedded in the way Augustine saw religion, saw spirituality. It was pretty common among the elites. Of course, all the common people during that time, they rejected all these notions. They had a more superficial view of the Bible and they had a superficial view of religion. This is where the elites went. The elites went to Platonism, whereas the masses, they turned to more literal readings of either the Bible or of uh, Homer. And the Neoplatonists were famous for reinterpreting uh, Plato, reinterpreting a Homer reinterpreting all these ancient works to better fit their theology. And they did that. Like Homer was teaching Neoplatonism? I don't think so. I don't think so, but that's what they believed, and that's what they taught. They, that uh, Homer was talking in a spiritual sense every time he talked about the different gods and their doings. And in that way, they could square the Greek Bible, quote-unquote the Greek Bible, the Iliad and the Odyssey, with their Neoplatonism. I'm building this spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet talks about the Platonistic idea of the One. And I'm going to be comparing it to Platonist metaphysics. There's a lot of systematic theologies I own by Calvinists, and they talk about the same ideas in God. But right now, I got it filled out with various uh, Platonistic ideas on different aspects of the One. And we'll talk about their concept of God, who the ultimate cause was. They believe, first of all, this, this One... This actually simple, pure actuality concept was purely simple because, of course, complexity leads to change. Complexity leads to something not being perfect. Complexity leads to something not being pure actuality. And so let's read Plotinus here. Standing before all things, there must exist a simplex differing from its all its sequel, self-gathering, not interblended with the forms that rise from it, and yet able in some mode of its own to be present to those others. It must be authentically a unity, not merely something elaborated into a unity, and so in reality, no more than a unity's counterfeit. It will debar all telling and knowing except that it may be described as transcending being. For if there were nothing outside at all, alliance and compromise, nothing authentically one, there would be no source. Untouched by multiplicity, it will be wholly self-sufficing, an absolute first, whereas not, whereas any not first demands its earlier, and any not simplex needs its simplicities within itself as the very foundations of its composite existence. And so the, the intellectual principle, the source of the intellectual principle, the one, the eternal first cause, it had to be entirely simple and indescribable. Notice those, those concepts that it's ineffable. You can't actually make concrete proclamations about this, this one thing, this cause of all existence. It precedes all existence and gives rise to it. So much so that uh, Plotinus was aloof. He didn't want to call this the one. He didn't want to call it the first principle. He thought it transcended the first principle because you can't call it the first because that would give some sort of numbering to it and it has to transcend that. And so the first principle was actually this creating element that descended from the one in Platonistic thought. So on pure actuality, uh, he writes this, We must go higher if it were only for the reason that the maker of all must have a self-sufficing existence outside of all things, since all the rest is patently indignant. And everything that has participated in the one 
and as drawing on unity is itself not unity. What then is this in which each particular entity participates? The author of being to a universe and to each item of the total. Since it is the author of all that exists, and since the multiplicity in each thing is converted into a self-sufficiencing existence by the presence of the one, so that even the particular itself becomes self-sufficing, then clearly this principle, author at once of being and of self-sufficingness, is itself not a being, but is above being and above even self-sufficing. So this one isn't acting on itself. This one doesn't have any motion or movement. It's above being. It's, it's this idea of pure actuality that you hear in Calvinism that they, they ascribe to God. God must be pure actuality with no potency. God can't have any change in himself, but he's, he's a pure act being. And this is the same idea in Platonism. It is Platonism. And they get the ideas from Platonism. Ineffability, we already talked about before. Ineffability means you can't describe it. You can't use human words to assign concepts to the idea of the one. Also, a very familiar theme in Platonist metaphysics, you can't make any positive pronouncements about the nature of God. Everything's above cognition. Everything's above what we can reach with our intellects. Plotinus writes this, Thus the one is in truth beyond all. Statement. Any affirmation is of a thing, but the all-transcending, resting above even the most august divine mind, possesses alone of all true being, and is not a thing among things. We can give it no name because that would imply predication. Remember, God is above predicates in Calvinism. But we can but try to indicate in our own feeble way something concerning it when our perplexity we object then it is without self-perception, without self-consciousness, ignorant of itself. We what must we remember that we have been considering it only in its opposite. So he's talking about negative theology. You can't be describing God in terms of positive being, in terms that give some sort of cognition to the idea of God. We can only understand God through negatives, through taking away. God is omnipotent. God's omniscient. God is all-powerful. God is outside of time. God is not subject to anything. God, God's infinite. All these terms of negative abstraction that doesn't assign anything positive to God, anything concrete to God. This is the only way that we could describe the one because it's not assigning any predicates to God. That's Plotinus's idea, also carried over in Calvinist systematic theologies. So as such, God's knowledge doesn't, uh, doesn't flow from outside sources. This is why on the Calvinist Arminian Open Theism page, I posted that anyone who believes that God looks into the future and sees the future and that's how he knows the future, they're actually an open theist because they believe that God receives knowledge from outside himself. God is not this uh, perfectly simple being that's uh, perfect in all his essence. He's receiving outside knowledge. He's receiving something from outside himself. He's creating composition to himself if he's receiving outside knowledge. So all God's knowledge in Platonism and also in Calvinism has to be this simple eternal act. And Plotinus is very, he's very careful not to ascribe any sort of cognition to God. God can't think about himself because thinking about yourself creates duality. It creates a thought about a thing. And so all God's knowledge has to be the purely simple type in which God's knowledge is indistinguishable 
from who he is. And you'll see this in Calvinistic systematic theologies, that all God's knowledge is in, of himself in one pure actual uh, act of knowledge. It's not this knowledge that comes from outside sources. And this is the same idea in Platonism. God can't receive things from outside himself, which would mean he's not perfect, which would give him change, would make, which would make him not simplex, which make him not the first principle of all things that exist, the, the, the originating cause of all things that exist. And we can read this in Plotinus. He says this, as regards providence, not fate, that is sufficiently saved by the fact that there is this source from which all proceeds. The dependent he cannot know when he has no knowledge of himself, but keeps that august repose. Plato, dealing with the essential being, allows it. Intellection, but not this august repose. Intellection then belongs to essential being. This august repose to the principle in which there is no intellection. Repose, of course, is used here for want of a fitter word. We are to understand that the most august, the truly so, is that which transcends the movement of intellection. God can't have thoughts. God can't have ideas. God can't have moving intellect, moving knowledge, it all, all has to be one pure, simple, eternal act because any type of movement of knowledge would create complexity in who God is. Plotinus does actually talk about some concepts of omniscience that are more familiar to Christian readers, and he talks about Zeus. And when he talks about Zeus, he's not talking about the Greek god named Zeus. He's talking about this demiurge, some sort of emanation from the one which created the material world. And he writes this, The answer is that he will know all to be one thing existing in virtue of one life forever. It is in this sense that the all is unlimited, and thus Zeus's knowledge of it will not be as something seen from outside, but as something embraced in true knowledge. For this unlimited thing is an eternal indweller within himself, or to be more accurate, eternally follows upon him, and is seen by an indwelling knowledge. Zeus knows his own unlimited life, and in that knowledge knows the activity that flows from him to the cosmos, but he knows it in its unity and not in its process. So Zeus is this uh, principle that which flows from the one, which in turn creates the universe. You could equate it to some sort of uh, creating factor, or some sort of creating principle or creating force emanating from the one. And so this, this force, uh, what uh, Plotinus calls Zeus or the Demiurgs, has this omniscience that's not in process and it's in unity. And it's, it's cognition, so we could describe it in some sense, but it's not the same type of uh, act of omniscience that was already described to the one, which it's an internal, immutable, simple knowledge that's equal to the one, that's indistinguishable from the one. And you'll see both type of language in Calvinist metaphysics, trying to describe both types of knowledge the same way. Uh, they're, they're kind of separate knowledges in, in the works of Plotinus. Plotinus talks about how God can't receive anything onto himself. He has to be eternally self-contained and separate, transcendent from the world as we know it. And he, Plotinus writes this, Hence its eternity, its identity, is utter irreceptivity and intermediability. If it took in it anything, it must be taking in something outside of itself. That is to say, existence would at last include non-existence, but it must be authentic existence all through. It must therefore present itself equipped from its own stores with all that makes up. 
existence so that all stands together and all is one thing. The existent real being must have thus much of determination. If it had not, then it could not be the source of the intellectual principle and of life, which would be importations onto it originating in the sphere of non-being and real being would be lifeless and mindless. But mindlessness and lifelessness are the characteristics of non-being and must belong to the lower order, to the outer borders of the existent. For the intellectual and the life rise from the beyond existence, the indefinable supreme, although itself has no need of them and are conveyed from it into authentic existence. God can't receive anything from outside himself. He has to be this immutable, simple principle that spawns everything that exists. If he got anything from other things, then he wouldn't be the source of all existence. The last thing we're going to cover real quick is Lloyd Garrison's overview of the divine idea of omniscience and of fate. Because in Plotinus, the one wills all things, but the one doesn't control all things. Equate this to the Calvinist, equate this to the Calvinist idea that God decrees all things to happen, yet does not uh, decree evil in the sense, but it merely permissively allows it. Augustine himself is famous for writing that evil is the negation of the good. And it's, it's not like a created thing. It's the absence of the good. And it's definitely a Platonic concept rooted in Platonic ideas. So reading this, the operation of divine providence, this is Lloyd Gerson, is held by Plotinus to be reconcilable with freedom and hence with evil and indistinguishable from fate. The former question will occupy us in due course. Regarding fate, Plotinus seems to identify it with necessity, particularly as this is understood by Plato and Timaeus. Necessity has general technical meaning for both Plato and Plotinus, referring to whatever happens outside the control of the nos, or intellect. Whatever it is that does so operate has in it some sense of nature, according to which what it does and what can happen to it are necessary. How within the creationist metaphysical framework produced by Plotinus there can be such things is a very difficult question. So talking about omniscience, if the one is provident, must it be omniscient? The appropriate Plotinian reply seems to be to say that it is in a way omniscient. The literal locus of omniscience is the intellect. We talked about that uh, Zeus, that uh, demiurge, which talks more about a, co a cognitive idea of omniscience. The one has that eternal, a simple, actual knowledge of itself, uh, identical to itself in, in the Platonistic metaphysics, in the Calvinist metaphysics. But the, the demiurge, the, the emanation from the one that has a more recognizable form of omniscience that m the normal Christians are used to. What the one must know in a manner of speaking, however, is that it is the goal of everything that exists and that everything that could exist does exist for it knows itself as an activity that is boundless, that everything happens as the one wills. It follows from the one's infinite power. But does this entail that everything happens because the one willed it to be so? The one certainly does not will the daring of the souls which initiates their downward descent. Remember, in, in the intellectual principles, there's this, this descent, this daring, where the, the souls kind of rebel, also found in the works of origin, and then create the soul principle. The, the soul world, the material world, is this dissension from the intellectual principle. And that's what he's describing here. The souls daring on themselves turn inwards and create this lower order world. 
which we need to escape by introspectively meditating on the one. The one certainly does not will the daring of the souls which initiates their downward descent, nor does it will the evil that exists in the world, since its will is by definition orientated exclusively to the good with which it is identified. Yet, if the one has infinite power and is omnibenevolent, then how can anything happen counter to its will? I think that there's little doubt that on the basis of what has already been said about the one's creative activity in nature, its providence, omniscience, and power must be qualified, since the one creates instrumentally limitations or defects in what is created, it can always be ascribed to instruments rather than the one. That everything happens as the one wills, it then means that there exist things both eternally and in time, which are what they are owing not to the one, but to the intellect that the things that exist owing to the activity of the one operate according to their natures is owing to the intellect, not the one. If what results from the instrumentality of the intellect is owing to what the intellect is in itself, then the one's knowledge of and power over is veiled, and the one cannot know how the outflow of goodness in it will turn out. It can only know in a way that whatever does exist is good insofar as it exists. As for the one's knowledge of and responsibility for the existence of evil, this of course depends on how evil is construed. One observation can be made here in anticipation of discussion in chapter 9. Since evil is privation, remember evil is a negation of the good in Platonism and in Calvinism, the one cannot produce evil itself. The one's product is just the existence of everything else, whereas a privation is the relation of one thing to another. God created everything that's good, and the, to the extent that the world is fallen, that's what's created evil. That's not a creation of God in Calvinism or in Platonism. It's a privation of the good. It's not the, a creation, but an absence of the, the ideas, the identity, the creation of the one. So, <laughs> ah, so that's a recap Neoplatonism real quickly so that uh, you might you might be thinking this this is a very very complicated podcast with a lot of very complex ideas platonism is the idea neoplatonism is the idea that there's three levels of existence there's of course the one the the god principle that's eternally that's eternally immutable unchanging abstract it can't be quantified, it's timeless, it has no predicates, it's immutable, it's perfection. And from that flows this realm, this, this spiritual realm. A lot of Christians would refer to that as the spiritual realm, but it's the realm of the intellect. And from the realm of the intellect, the realm of the material world is created. And the realm of the material world is the, the lowest realm, the realm of the soul, and where the corruptible, changeable things dwell. And a goal of a good Platonist is to reascend those levels of dissension and try to move from the realm of the soul to the realm of the intellect and to move from the realm of the intellect to the realm of the one. And the one is the Calvinist concept of God and has all the features that we see in modern day Calvinism. Of course, Christianity, as has been famously stated, is Platonism for the people. And you really see that in Christian systematic theologies when they adopt these ideas, and they literally do. 
And a lot of people don't understand Christianity. They don't read systematic theologies. They don't understand that they, they, they read these terms, they read these definitions in Christian systematic theology that just mere Platonism, just pure Platonism, and they skip over it. They read it, they, it goes in one ear, out the other. They don't understand what they're reading. And uh, you'll see that. You'll start picking that up if, you, if you're attuned to what Neoplatonism is and some of the, the key concepts that we find in Neoplatonistic thought. So hopefully you stuck with me to the end of this podcast. Kudos if you did. If you have any questions or comments, send that to GodIsOpenQuestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>